0: It's a joy to be with you, man. Something I've been looking forward to since the invitation was extended. Um, always a privilege to stand behind this pulpit. Like you, I have sat under it and benefited from it. Uh, my story, my ministry, my life in the United States is intrinsically linked um, to the life of Grace Community and uh, Pastor John MacArthur, whose friendship and kindness um, I am in debt to and thankful for. We came out in 1994 to go to TMS. Uh, we were sponsored and supported by uh, George and Anna Sanders, who are uh, involved in, in the life of this church. I lived on the same street as Phil Johnson and Lance Quinn, um, and uh, we, we got whatever we could off the opportunity sheet uh, in terms of dryers and uh, washers and all kinds of things. And so, even though I pastored Placerita Baptist Church in Santa Clarita uh, from the day I got here, um, Grace Community Church has always been a second home. Uh, your pastor is uh, the benchmark for expository preaching. Uh, he's been a friend of our family, a mentor. Uh, he encouraged me to get on the radio some nine years ago talking about Grace Community's help. Uh, Matt McGuire, who just played on the piano, wrote the signature tune for our radio ministry. And so it's just a delight to be here. And I trust as we uh, go through God's word together in this session and the next hour that God will use it in each of our lives. If I might just plug, uh, we've made a book available to you at half price. This uh, is on Amazon at $19.99, but we're giving it a special conference price today at $10. I just want to say One thing about it, Uh, I wrote it out of my experience as a police officer in Northern Ireland, and the thesis of the book is that security is not the absence of danger, security is the presence of God. Uh, You can't run from trouble, certainly not as a police officer in Northern Ireland, and I had to flesh out my theology, I had to live out the sovereignty of God, I had to believe that my greatest protection was the hedges God put around my life until he desired something else. And so I've kind of taken that. With the San Bernardino shooting a couple of years ago when ISIS attacked uh, a medical facility out there and unnerved our community, I kind of preached this and wrote it. So I think you'll enjoy it. And I want to make a pitch. If you know someone in law enforcement or you know someone in the military, I think this would be a great gift for them as they guard us. Uh, We trust that they'll look to God to guard them. Well, it's a joy to be here. Let's take our Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to speak this hour on the subject, put it to the test. And then in the second hour, we're going to look at Philippians 4 verses 8 through 9. We're going to look at the subject, um, good thoughts. Uh, But I'm pumped to be here. I've got our people praying. We had our own men's ministry this morning. Uh, I gave that over to uh, um, to uh, another uh, friend, and uh, we are so delighted to partner with you. Uh, some years ago, when I pastored Emmanuel Baptist Church in Toledo, one of the deacons came to me and said, Pastor, I saw a sign in a gun shop downtown Toledo that I thought you might enjoy. And he said, On the window of this gun shop was, was this sign Treat your gun like you'd treat an Irishman, always assume it's loaded. Well,. <laughs> Um, I'm locked and loaded. Uh, I'm not under the influence of alcohol. I trust I'm filled by the Spirit. And I'm going to take you to the Word of God and keep your Bible open. In fact, let's read the verses um, I want to look at this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21 to 22. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Theodore Roosevelt, the president of the United States, once had a little dog that kept getting into fights with other dogs, but he always lost. And someone in the press corps asked the president one day why his dog was such a bad fighter, to which he famously replied, my dog is a good fighter. He's just a poor judge of dogs. Joking aside, poor judgment is dangerous. It is harmful. Poor judgment can land you in trouble. And the reason I say that is because I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the Bible presents life in some sense as one big choice. And if that's true, then poor judgment, the wrong choice, the wrong turn, the wrong path can harm us, both presently and in the future. Have you ever noticed that the Bible is antithetical? In his book, The Call to Discernment, J. Adams says this, From the Garden of Eden with its two trees, one allowed and one forbidden, to the eternal destiny of the human being in heaven or hell, the Bible sets forth two and only two ways, God's ways and other ways. Accordingly, people are said to be saved or lost. They belong to the people of God or the world. There was Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, and Ebal, the Mount of Condemnation. There is the narrow way and the wide way, leading either to eternal life or destruction. There are those who are against and those who are with us, those within and those without. There is life and death truth and falsehood, good and bad, light and darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, love and hatred, spiritual wisdom and the wisdom of the world. Christ is said to be the way, the truth, and the life, and no one may come to the Father but by him. He is the only name under the sky by which we may be saved. Gentlemen, the Bible is antithetical. It kind of presents every choice as one choice. Between truth and error, light and darkness, Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. That's why you and I need to bring a jeweler's eye to life itself. We need to learn to exercise discernment. We need to manifest prudence. We need to show some discrimination. Proverbs 2 verse 3 says that the wise man cries out, for discernment. Proverbs 16:21 tells us that the wise man is marked by prudence. In a pick and mix world, in a generalist society, in a relativistic culture, in a confused church, the Christian man must learn the skill of being clear and convictional in their choices. We must learn to separate the precious from the vile. Jeremiah 15, verse 19. Ours is a morally gray world. And Dr. MacArthur talked about that this morning, both in his his keynote speech and in his Q&A session. We've got to be active and aggressive in learning to be discerning, learning to be discriminating, to know what ends up. Jesus chastised those in his day who could um, discern the face of the sky, (laughs) but they didn't know what time they were living in. Matthew 16 verses one to four. We need to seek and we need to learn the skill of discernment and yet it's lacking in many. To be honest about it, some Christians have no more spiritual discernment than little red riding hood. Remember that little story? I remember being introduced to it in elementary school back in Northern Ireland where the wolf connives to get Little Red Riding Hood and her basket of goodies. And so he runs ahead, goes into grandmother's house, gobbles her up. And then the unsuspecting Little Red Riding Hood comes in. She's a little uneasy by what she sees. And she says to the wolf, what a deep voice you have, to which he replies all the better to speak to you with. Oh, what big eyes you have, all the better to see you with. What big hands you have, all the better to hold you with. Oh, what a big mouth you have, all the better to eat you with. And the wolf jumps up, gobbles up, little red riding hood in her basket of goodies. I remember that, first time I heard that. And all the little girls with their pigtails in the classroom were screaming. But I remember saying to myself, she deserves it. I said to myself, this this girl's as dumb as a post. Come on, how many signs do you want? The big hands, the big ears, the big mouth. How naive could she be? Well, I think she could be as naive as a host of evangelicals that sits in the pews of the average church in North America. That's why we need to urgently heed this call of this conference. To discover and to develop the gift, the skill, the ability to discern. That's why I want to come right now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. Where Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says this, Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. If you want an outline, here it is. We're going to look at, first of all, the context involved. Then we're going to look at the command involved. Then we're going to look at the contrast involved. Then we're going to look at the cultivation involved. Not going to spend a lot of time on the context, but let's get our text in context, lest it become a pretext for misunderstanding. The context. Let's look at the wider context. The specific instructions that Paul wants to give to the church of Thessalonica is over. And now he's going to give them a string of final and general instructions. Takes us back to verse 12 and comes right through to verse 22. In, in many ways, they are standalone, but perhaps there is a link in a chain of thought. Here's the way I would divide it. Number, number one, verses 12 through 13, it's how people are to serve the pastors and the pastors to serve the people. Then in verses 14 to 15, he talks about body life and how the people are to pastor themselves and to live at peace among themselves. Then in verses 16 to 22, we, we learn how pastors and people can serve the Lord in these general instructions. That's the wider context. Number two, the narrower context. Look at the verse before verse 20 or even the verse before that. In verse 19, he's been talking about the work of the Holy Spirit and how you and I must not dampen the fire of his presence or power in our lives. Talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, he then goes on to talk about prophecy. And we're not sure, and the commentators are divided. i will be talking about direct prophecy, direct revelation, something new that comes through the gifting of the Holy Spirit within the apostolic era could be And they're told not to despise that. But since prophecy may have already been given and either orally or uh, has been written down, the, the prophecy in mind could be that which has already been given and is now being repeated. Either way, whether it's the announcing of new revelation or the repeating of already given revelation, here's what comes next. Test all things. So that's the connection. That's the context. If revelation has been given, that which is purported to come from God by means of the work of the Holy Spirit, you've got to test it. You've got to weigh it. You've got to weigh the vessel from which it comes. You've got to weigh the words that are given. Do they comport with God's character, the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, and the other apostolic revelation? So prophets are to be tested. Prophecy is to be wed, which introduces us to the theme of discernment. So that's the context involved. What about the command involved? Well, it is this command to be discerning, to test all things. Guys, discernment is a must. It's not an optional extra in your experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a must in the life of a vibrant, victorious follower of Jesus Christ. You must be dialed in to this ability to distinguish between light and darkness, truth and falsehood, the primary, the secondary, the permanent, the transient. The godly must not be gullible. Write it down. The godly must not be gullible. Now let's look at our word test. Test. Test all things. Takamadzo means to prove, to try, to examine. It's used in chapter one verse chapter two verse four of those approved of God. Examined and approved of God. It carries the idea of testing something with the expectation of approving it. It's not nitpicking. It's not negative in its intention. It's actually positive in its intention. It wants to prove something until that something can be approved. It it was used in that day and in that culture of testing coins, weighing them to make sure they hadn't been shaved. Um, Some shopkeepers, some nerdy wells in that day would often shave a little bit of the silver off or the gold off. That's why you've got that phrase, a man's worth his weight in gold. But sometimes that gold was shaven and it wasn't the full weight. There means it had lost value. Sometimes it wasn't gold at all, and it only looked what looked like gold or silver. And so that's our word, that's the context of our word. It's to determine the genuineness and the value of something. Now let me say this, it's a good little little phrase to write down. We're we're being asked to test everything, not try everything. There's a whole world of difference there. What are we being asked to test? Well, I've got two questions that will give us an answer. Why? Why should we test at all? And what should we test? Number one, why? Why should we test all things? Not try all things, but Examine all things. Number one, because the world is full of knockoffs and counterfeits. That's true in the, in the physical world. In fact, I was doing a little bit of research and the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition tells us this, that counterfeiting costs the United States in terms of business, 200 to 250 billion dollars a year. That's an amazing statistic. Counterfeit merchandise is directly responsible for the loss of more than 750,000 jobs in the United States. Worldwide, 5 to 7% of world's trade is done with counterfeit goods. I think you and I know that this is a world of knockoffs, of, of counterfeits. And I want to remind you that the greatest counterfeit of them all is Satan himself. We're told in 2 Corinthians 11:14 he can turn himself into an angel of light. What about that for a trick? Not a deception. We're told in John 8, 44, that he's a liar. We're told in Revelation 20, verses 78, someday God's going to lock him up and he will deceive the nations no more. Satan offers things in the place of God. Empty philosophies in the place of solid truth. sacks in the place of intimacy. Shallow laughs in the place of deep joy. Distractions in the place of purpose. And death in the place of life. So why test all things? Because God doesn't want you to get ripped off spiritually. You need to be discerning because the world is full of con artists and spiritual hucksters and Satan's hard at work pulling the wool over your eyes so that you make bad decisions and your life is governed by poor judgment. Not only why, but what about what? What's included in everything? It's a kind of catch-all, isn't it? Test, test everything. Well, generally, Paul's just telling us that there is no discernment-free zones in your life. By implication, he's telling us there's not an area of your life from entertainment to, to uh, sports, to your work, to your viewing habits, to, to your church life. There's not an area of your life that ought not to be subjected to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Test all things. Weigh it in the light of God's word, God's glory, the advancement of the kingdom of his son. Aren't we told in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. That's everything. And you won't determine whether it's for the glory of God without a king's sense of discernment. Tim Chalice in the book, I think, has been made available to you during this conference on discernment, says this, there is no area in which we have perfect understanding. There is no area of life that is beyond our need and ability of discernment. What, what are some of the areas? This is a study in itself. I'll just throw some your way. You ought to discern teaching. You ought to weigh any sermon that you've heard. That's what the Bereans did, didn't they? In Acts 17, 11, they were more noble than the Thessalonians in that they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so? You you ought to test every sermon you've heard. You, You ought to test, if you were alive in Paul's day, prophecy, certainly new prophecy, whether it comported with old prophecy, whether it was measured straight with the Old Testament and the Old Covenant writings, you're to test the spirits. Doctor MacArthur talked about that in the first R, First John 4 verse 1. We're to look at the source from which something might come. Is it a trusted source? Is it a biblical source? You're to test leaders. First Timothy 3 verse 10. Deacons are first to be tested. You're to test the times in which you live to discern them. Luke 12 56. And you're to test the genuineness of your own faith. That doesn't mean you're to become introspective to the point of disturbing your assurance. As old Spurgeon said, for every look at self, take two looks at Christ. But make sure that you do once in a while take yourself to that place where you make sure that uh, there are works alongside your faith. There is transformation alongside your confession. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. So the the context, you and I have got to be discerning in the context of prophecy, old or new. And Then you've got the command to, to test all things. Why? Because you can get ripped off. What? Almost anything. But we have listed some things specifically. Now, before we move on, someone ought to say to me, hold on a minute. What about Matthew 7, verse 1? This is the favorite verse of the Democratic Party right now. This is the favorite verse of of the theological and social left. When they want to shut conversation down, well, didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest you be judged? Well, he did, but don't stop there, please. Uh, someday I'm going to preach a series of sermons called finish the text. Finish the text. And this is one you've got to finish. Because here's what we read in Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. Don't stop there. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And listen, with the measure you use, implication is you are going to judge. Implication is that being discriminating is okay. The issue is, is it fair? Is it balanced? Does it begin with you and not the other person? Jesus goes on, because the matter that you use will be used back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look at the plank in your own eye, hypocrite? First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from their brother's eye. Glad you brought Matthew 7, one up. We are to judge, but judge fairly. Jesus doesn't condemn discrimination, discernment, proper judgment on matters of behavior, morality, theology. But what he does condemn is hypocritical judgment that which is unfair and imbalanced. Guys, isn't it true? We have a tendency to see the log sticking out of the other person's eye before we see it in our own. We have a tendency to make other people look bad so that we can make ourselves look good. We have a tendency to see in others what we are blind to in ourselves. It's one of the pitfalls of discernment. It's only one way. In fact, speaking about that, I like um, something that an African-American minister by the name of Raleigh Washington said at a men's conference many years ago. He said this, when I was born, I was black. When I grew up, I was still black. When I go out in the cold, I'm still black. When I go into the sun, I'm more black. When I'm sick, I'm black. When I die, I'm sure I'll still be black. But I find out that when it comes to white people, when they're born, they're pink. When they grow up, they're white. When they go out in the cold, they're blue. When they stay in the sun, they're red. When they get sick, they're green. And when they die, they're purple. And they call me colored? It's a good point. It's a very good point. That's the point of Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Before you go around judging someone else, why don't you take a good look at yourself? Let's move on. Not only do you have um, the context involved, not only the command involved, thirdly, what I call the contrast involved. The contrast. Let's go back to our text. The contrast is this. Hold fast to what is good. And by contrast, shun what is evil. That's the contrast. There's to be a discrimination between good and evil. And once you have determined what's good, you are to pursue that over the other. You're to secure the good and you're to shun the evil. That's our tax. You get something similar in Romans 12 verse 9 if you're taking notes. So let me just kind of tease this out for a moment. I want to go somewhere with this that I believe is very practical and very pastoral when it comes to this issue of discernment. Let's just understand what Paul is encouraging them to. On the one hand, a Christian is to defend what is good, to discover what is good and to defend it. The word good here means noble, good in itself. Not good as a result, but intrinsically good. And if that's true of something or someone, you and I are to cling to it, grip it, grasp it, hold on to it. Because that good thing is good for us, good for our kids, good for our marriage, good for our church, good for our health, good for our discipleship. You get the point. So here's what he's saying. The disciple of Jesus Christ is someone with good taste, noble thought, sound doctrine, and an admirer of good men and good causes. On the other hand, by contrast, the Christian is to abstain from every form of evil, or as the old King James would put it, from every appearance of evil. I'm not sure that's the best translation. In fact, the the word that gives us form here can mean every kind of. It can mean outward appearance or form. But it can mean sort or species. I think that's a better way of looking at it. Paul's just saying, hey, get your hands on anything that's morally, theologically, intrinsically good. Hold on to it. It'll be good for you. But anything that's evil or got the connotation of evil, shun it. Drop it. Get rid of it. We are not to dance with the devil. We are not to toy with temptation. And we're not to be party to any shady thing, guys. I think it was Spurgeon, but if not him, certainly one of the older writers who said, if God and you are to be one, sin and you ought to be two. We need to shun, separate ourselves from those things that contaminate and corrupt. So do you see the contrast? Now, I want to go somewhere with it for a few minutes on a practical side of things, because there's a beautiful balance here. There's there's a beautiful balance here. You and I have got to learn this, and it's very important that we learn it, that the goal of discernment, is not to simply avoid the evil that's in this life, but to learn what is the good. It opens us up to a world of beauty and nobility and good taste. We tend to see discernment in a negative connotation. It has that. You are to shun evil. But it's not just that. It's the pursuing of what is good. It's the loving of good man and good causes. It's the embracing of good theology. You know, I was um, trained at Milltown Baptist Church in Belfast under a man by the name of Freddie McLaughlin, whose son Jonathan's about to graduate in our d program here at TMS in a few weeks. And Freddie used to say to me when we were driving around Belfast in the car to a hospital visit or just going to grab a cup of tea, he'd often say, Philip, do you know what the forgotten beatitude is? I have no idea. What are you talking about? He said, the forgotten beatitude is blessed are the balanced. It's a good word. Blessed are the balanced. It's not just truth, it's love. It's not just love, it's truth. It's not just the spirit, it's the word. It's not just the word, it's the spirit. It's not just faith, it's works. It's not just works, it's faith. It's not just divine sovereignty, it's evangelism. It's not just evangelism, it's divine sovereignty. Blessed are the balance, amen? And that's what's going on here. Blessed are the balanced. And the balance in discernment is not just the shunning of what's evil and the calling out of what's wrong. It's the loving of what's good. It's the promoting of love among the brethren. And so that made me think, you and I need to be discerning when it comes to discernment. We need to be discerning about our discernment. If we're not careful, it's become lopsided. It becomes negative. It's about theological controversy only. It's about picking fights with people. All in the name of discernment. Well, I'm glad you've got something of that going on because the godly aren't gullible. But what else have you got going on? In the pursuit of good? In the embracing of what's beautiful? Just like some of the medicines they're selling us on television today, there are side effects to discernment. You ever watch those adverts? They kind of make me laugh, although there's nothing laughable about what people are suffering. But you know, you watch them, they're telling you this new this new medicine and they'll tell you about the side effects that might produce nausea, diarrhea, headaches, your hair might fall out, your body might give off an odor that would make a skunk be embarrassed. You're, you're, if you're a woman, you might grow a mustache. You mean it goes on and it goes on. It, it's kind of crazy. I'm kind of going, the, the, the cure's worse than the illness. You can keep that. But as I think about discernment, there are many side effects to discernment that you've got to watch out for. I mean, right? I wrote down five. I'm going to have to go through these quickly and get to the last major point this, this afternoon. But just follow along and see if this doesn't challenge you because given where we are at, given who you are, I think this is going to be a danger for any one of us. We, we might fall into the trap of these side effects of being overly discerning in one direction. Here's what I wrote down. Number one, we can become overzealous and be tempted to step outside the biblical boundaries for making a judgment. That we are called to be, ju- to judge, to be discriminating, to hold fast what is good, to shun what is evil. But that's in the area of actions or words, or theology. It's not in the area of motives. So, so you and I said it to be discerning. We've got to be careful to stay within our jurisdiction as a judge. The Bible allows me to look at teaching and teachers and make objective judgments about their theology or their words or their lifestyle or their behavior. The same with many areas of life. But the Bible tells me to be careful when you fall over into the area of motive because no man knows another man's heart. That's why Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you since we've got to wait for the day of judgment when God will bear the hearts of all men. Because you can misread me and misjudge me. In fact, isn't that what Satan did with Job? He tried to judge his motives. Lord, can I speak to you about your servant Job? He's good living for a living. Will you touch him, he'll squeal like a child. He'll drop his theology and he'll walk away. Funny, that wasn't true. Because Job was a pure man in motive and in action. He was the real deal on the inside as well as the outside. It can be a satanic thing, certainly an ungodly thing, to try and judge people's motives. Plus, the Bible would remind us to make a judgment between biblical convictions, traditional opinions, and personal preferences. But we tend to raise our preferences and our opinions up to the level of biblical convictions. That's dangerous. It has no biblical sanction, and it's not an act of discernment. It's an act of disturbance and division in the body of Christ. Matters of conscience, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Romans 14 verses 1 through 4, are meant to be left alone. And when it comes to eating food, it may have come from a butcher shop from which, uh, you know, offerings from the the, the the temple came. Some say there's no problem with that because there's no such a thing as an idol. Others say, man, I come out of that world. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be associated that in one way. I'm not going to eat that stuff. And Paul says, hey, don't judge a brother either way. See, when it comes to whether a Christian can go and watch a movie or not, liberty of conscience in drinking alcohol, certain foods, school choices, political affiliations. Got to be careful. Because if we're not careful, we'll end up outside the biblical jurisdiction of being discerning and being discriminating. Number two, if we're not careful, we can know error as much as we know truth. And that's counterproductive. By its nature, think about this, guys. Discernment has us looking into stuff that's dangerous. We're testing the spirits. Is it godly, ungodly? Is it satanic or Christian? And discernment can take you into that world and you can spend a lot of time encountering and countering evil and falsehood. And if you're not careful, you can end up spending so much time studying evil and shunning it that you don't hold fast to what is good and promote it. Timothy and Titus are told by Paul in the pastoral epistles, hey, stay away from needless conversations and controversies, endless arguments, it's profitless, and shun evil teachers. Don't spend a lot of time with them or learning about them. Now, the emphasis in the pastoral epistles is is on um, guarding the gospel, diligently studying the word and proactively preaching the scripture. I think John MacArthur puts it well. Scripture does not give believers permission to expose themselves to evil. Some people believe the only way to defend against false doctrine is to study it because being proficient in it will help them master its nuances and then refute it. I know some people who study the cults more than they study sound doctrine. Some Christians immerse themselves in the philosophical entertainment and culture of society. They feel such a strategy will strengthen their witness to the unbeliever. But the emphasis of that strategy is all wrong. Our focus should be on knowing the truth. Error is to be shunned. It's a good word. That's the balance. We're to know error. We're to expose it but the best way of doing that is knowing the truth, which in itself will expose the error. Number three, if you're not careful, it's easy to lose perspective and proportionality. This is one of these side effects. See, discernment by its nature asks us to be theologically precise. Discernment, Its favorite colors are black and white. Doesn't do well with gray. It likes primary issues, not secondary issues. And if you're not careful pursuing that skill, which is a good skill, but if you're not careful, things can get out of proportion and you can lose perspective. If you're not careful... You start out by saying all doctrine is important and you finish saying all doctrine is equally important, which is not true. There are doctrines of primary importance. All doctrine is important, but not all doctrine is equally important. If you're not careful, you can lose perspective. You can end up in a world where there's no ambiguity, where there's no looking in the glass darkly, where there's no doctrines hard to understand, which Peter acknowledges regarding Paul's talking about eschatology. You end up with no questions unanswered. Everything is a hell to die on. You end up screening at knots and swallowing camels. Matthew 23 23 to 24. You lose perspective and proportionality. Isn't that the issue Jesus addressed, guys, in Matthew 7? The measure with which you are measured will turn around and measure you. Measure, that's proportionality. You can lose proportionality. You can see the speck in the other guy's eye, the toothpick in the other guy's eye, but you can't see the plank sticking out of your own. So it's a danger. I remember being at an event among Irish Baptists in Belfast one day, a little bit of theological controversy was in the mix of the conversation and a couple of brethren got up and, and forced that and made a big argument about that. I was sitting in a pew behind me, an older pastor said something I've never forgot regarding the issue and regarding how it was being handled. Here's what he said. They're using a hammer to crack a nut you get his point? They, they're, they're, they're losing proportionality. They're, they're lacking perspective. Of course, this is an issue. It's worth a debate. But is it worth this emotion? Is it worth this force of argument? The hammer for the nut? But you see, when you're theologically precise, that's a trap you can fall into. Number four, backing off this last point, Because you're in a world in discernment of making judgments, of making calls. If you're not careful, you can become argumentative. You move from making an argument for the truth to just enjoying making arguments. I've met them, you've met them. There's not a person they don't dislike, they pick fights over anything. They strain at knots and swallow camels. They speak the truth, but without love. Ephesians 4.15 They become combative. And when they speak about the culture, when they speak about enemies of the gospel, there's nothing there like you find in Philippians 3 where Paul talks about those who had become enemies of the gospel. He talks about how his heart is broken over that. We end up being like John and James, the sons of thunder. We're more than happy to call it an airstrike into a certain area, a certain kind of part of the body of Christ. And we forget what spirit we're of. Testing everything doesn't mean you become testy. And nasty and argumentative. Spurgeon was as quick to draw lines as any man, read about the downgrade controversy. But although he agreed that we have a fixed faith that must be preached, he did say on another occasion to the students at his Bible college don't go about the world with your fist doubled up for fighting, carrying a theological revolver in the leg of your pants. It's dangerous. Finally, the fight for truth can seem like a losing battle. I think you can feel that. It seems like it today almost, doesn't it? We look out on the culture. Dr. MacArthur talked about that. one. we are at the bottom of Romans 1. It's the last days and men are being violent and it's difficult times. We look at the church and it's lack of discernment. And when you're in that fight, and when you've got a heart for that fight, it can be depressing. I was reading a book a year or two ago by Lyle Dorset on the life of A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer said to a young man he was mentoring by the name of McAfee, he said, if you want to be happy, never ask for the gift of discernment. What he was saying, you get what he's saying. Man, when you've got a heart for theology, when you want to dot your I's and cross your T's, When you want to be precise, because as the old Puritans used to say, we follow a precise God. It can get pretty depressing and discouraging when you see the lack of theological clarity in the church and moral precision in the culture. But here's the danger, guys. You can become discouraged. You become discouraged regarding others and then you start making judgments about others and become proud about yourself when measured against others. So the discouragement can lead to pride and the pride can lead to a sense of superiority and you become like Elijah, only I am left and before long you're on a little island by yourself. You're the purest of the pure. That's what happened to A.W. Pink. If you read Ian Murray's book on his life, it's pretty sad because he's a great man. But he got to that place where he ended up living out his last days on an island, not fellowshipping with any local church because there wasn't any pure enough. Okay, let's move on to our last thought. The cultivation involved. You still with me? Say amen. All right. The cultivation involved. We're to test all things. That's what we're to do. That's commanded of us. And we're to test all things with this contrast in mind, what is good and what is bad. And we're not just to focus on what is bad. We've got to remind ourselves that there's some side effects if we don't discern the issue of discernment. But, but how do we cultivate it? We've answered the question, why? Why? Because there's a lot of counterfeits out in this world. We've answered the question, what it is and what it's not. Finally, I want to answer the question, how? How do we gain it? How do we develop it? Let me run through a few things, a few mile markers along the path to discernment. Number one, it involves prizing. It involves prizing. What do I mean by that is, you and I have got the value, desire, desire, spiritual discernment. Paul desired it for the Thessalonians. That's why he said, test all things. In Proverbs 2, verse um, 3, here's what we read. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, the find, the knowledge of God. The Lord will give you wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. You're to seek her like silver. That discernment's got to become a priority for you after this conference. You know what? I don't know if this has happened to you recently. I find myself when I drop a penny now, I, I hardly bother to bend over and lift it up. And my mother would be ashamed of me. Remember her saying many times, penny wise, pun foolish, son. But gotta be honest, there's times I've dropped the penny and just can't be bothered picking it up. Now, if a $20 bill was blown out of my hand, I man, I'd go after that thing like a heat-seeking missile. And you know why, because it's not a penny. It's $20. You can buy something with 20 bucks. Why do I chase the one and won't bend over for the other? It's an issue of value. I put a value on the 20 bucks. I don't put any value on the penny that falls to the street. And it's the same, you've got the value discernment. And if you value it, you understand that it's something God wants for you, it's necessary in the church, you're going to need it to navigate life because life has got all these choices, but life is one big choice between two paths, two trees, between Christ and antichrist. You're going to put a value on this thing and you're going to go after it. It involves prizing number two, It involves praying. Praying naturally follows desire. Because what is prayer? But it's the expression of our desires. We trust within the will of God. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, it was Augustine who said, Your desire is your prayer. And your desire is without ceasing, and therefore your prayer ought to be without ceasing. We're always desiring stuff. The trick is we've got to make sure our desires line up with what God desires for us. And you know what? We can be sure when we desire discernment, which leads to praying about that desire, we're asking for something God wants to answer. Classic example, write down First Kings 3 verse 9, King Solomon God hands him a blank check. Mm. What would you do with a blank check from God? And he said, you know what, Lord? I'm going to cash it in. Here's what I want. I want wisdom. I want discernment. He uses a phrase in the Hebrew, coming in and coming out of the court. It's it's everything that passes by me in in my administration. I want to be able to handle it with skill, with discernment, with, with discrimination. I want to know how to split the baby, so to speak, philosophically. Would you give me that? God said, I love that. I love that. I love the fact that's what you want, because you're a leader and you need it. And you know what, Solomon? I'm going to throw in riches and health and prosperity. James tells us, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So it's prizing and it's praying. Here's what I love about prayer because prayer says three things about me and about discernment when I'm praying for it. Number one, I'm acknowledging that discernment is a gift. It's a spiritual gift. It's something that God gives as he gives us a piece of his wisdom for our lack of our wisdom. Number two, it's an acknowledgement of my humble dependence upon God and my finiteness and my fallenness. And then, in the acknowledgement that I live in a very dangerous world, a moral minefield, and I got to pick my way through it without blowing my legs off. Now, here's the other thing not only does it involve prizing, not only does it involve praying, it involves pursuing. What do I mean by that? I mean, pursuing the presence. And the perspective and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. We've got to regain our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Too many Protestant evangelicals have got two-thirds of God, the Father and the Son. We've allowed the charismatics to scare us. Old Van Zappen used to say, we're so frightened of getting out on a limb, we won't even climb the tree. But we've got to regain a proper, robust understanding of the person and work and power of the Holy Spirit. And one of his gifts, one of his ministries, one of his work in our lives is to make us discerning. He's the spirit of truth. And he leads God's people into truth. The classic verse, guys, you want to write it down, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural man doesn't discern, doesn't understand, doesn't get The things of God. Because they are spiritually discerned. And in that passage, he talks about the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit as he opens our minds and hearts to understand the written word where we find God's wisdom and God's will delineated for us. So discernment means being led by the spirit by implication. I want to write I want you to write something down. Discernment is not simply a cerebral exercise. It doesn't come automatically after reading 600 pages of systematic theology. It's something the Holy Spirit, in tandem with good books, but in tandem with the book, produces in us. It's spiritual. It's a gift. It's a blessing from heaven itself. It's the pursuit of the presence and power and perspective of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. Here's a fourth thought. It involves pondering. It involves pondering. Having said that the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God, which He has authored to help us gain discernment, I want to make that argument right down Ephesians five eighteen and Colossians three, verse sixteen. In the one we're told to be filled with the Spirit, it will produce psalm singing, songs, thanksgiving, all kinds of things. You go to Colossians three sixteen, the same things are produced but the source is letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When you marry those two verses together, you come to realize that the filling of the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, is coming under the domination of the authority of the word he taught. He wrote. He illuminates. So here's the thought. At the crossroads of choice, the word of God will be a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our path. How beautiful is that? The word of God can give us good judgment and keep us from bad judgment. Hebrews 412 to 13, the word of God discerns the soul and the spirit. The word of God discerns the intent of the heart. The word of God by its very nature used by the spirit of God in the life of the child of God produces discernment. You want to be a discerning Christian? You've got to be a biblical Christian. I, I took this from Warren Wearsby in his commentary in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. You know that passage. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable. Profitable for what? For doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and in righteousness. I like his little outline. I'm always attracted to memorable outlines. It helps me remember, and I guess it'll help you. Here's what Wiersbe said. They are profitable for doctrine what is right. They are profitable for reproof what is not right. They are profitable for correction how to get right. They are profitable for instruction in righteousness how to stay right. That's good. The word of God teaches me what is right, what's not right, helps me get right, helps me stay right. That's the prophet of the study of God's word. Many, many years ago, an umpire by the name of Babe Pinelli once called Babe Ruth out on strikes. The crowd went crazy. They booed. They showed their sharp disapproval. And the legendary baseball player, Ruth, turned to the umpire with disdain and here's what he said there's 40,000 people here who know that the last pitch was a ball you're a tomato head at this point the coaches and the bench on Ruth's side thought he's going to get ejected but bib panelli the umpire turned and with calm in front of 40,000 people said this may be so bib but mine is the only opinion that counts. 40,000 people have an opinion, but mine's the only one that counts. I think it's a great thing, guys, to get up every day of your life and no matter where you begin to deal with the crisis of life and the choices of life and the challenges of life. It's a wonderful thing to know that you have God's Word and it's final and authoritative in all matters of faith and practice. It's a great thing to know that it's only his opinion that counts. It involves partnering. One or two more will be wrapped up here in time. It involves partnering. What I mean by that, discernment is learned in the company of others. If you read the book of Proverbs, which is all about understanding, All about discernment. What have you got? This little motif, father and son. And the father says to the son, the son learns discernment in the company of his father. In other parts of Proverbs 13 verse 20 and Proverbs 15 verse 22, the wise will walk with the wise. There's security in a multitude of counselors. If it's true of the love of God, is it not true of the wisdom of God that we comprehend it in the company of all the saints? Ephesians 3 verse 18. Do you not, do you not want to be blown about by every wind of doctrine? You want to have discernment, stability in your life spiritually and sin under pastor teachers who can rightly divide the word of truth. Sit in the company of good teachers. Listen to your father, if as he's biblical and insightful. Listen to good Christian friends. In fact, First Corinthians 12 verse 10 tells us there was the gift of discernment, of the discerning of the spirits. Many commentators would say today that translates into theologians, seminary professors, good authors, who have a king eye to discern what's right and wrong, what's true, what's false. John D. Rockefeller said this about his success in life. I simply hired men who were smarter than me. It's a good insight. You want to be discerning? You want to learn how to thread the needle in life? How to navigate the moral minefields? And the confusion that's descending like a mist on the culture and the church? Hang out with people smarter than you in the Bible, in their walk with God, in the arena of discipleship. Get a mentor. And be humble humble enough to acknowledge what Spurgeon said. He said this, I've always thought it odd that some people think so much of what God teaches them, but so little about what God teaches others. Okay, here's the last thought. We'll wrap this up. It involves practicing. This would be Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14. We don't have time to kind of exposit this, but the writer of the Hebrews kind of takes them to the woodshed, about the fact that many of them spiritually are immature. They're not where they ought to be. They're on milk when they should be on meat. They should be further along in their understanding of Christ and the old covenant as it relates to the new covenant, how Christ is better than Moses and his offering better than anything in the Levitical system of worship. They're undiscerning in that. They need to grow in that. And he takes a kind of analogy of a child that, that needs to grow because children tend to be undiscerning about what they eat, where they go and who they hang out with. So they need discernment. But what interests me is, what, uh, is how the writer puts it. I think it's in verse um, 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of foliage. That is, listen to this, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. It's the closing thought. It's the last point. Discernment is a skill that you polish, that you learn, that you develop through prayer, dependence upon the Holy Spirit, study of the word, being discipled by others, obeying what you know to be true. It's it's, practice makes perfect. Even in the spiritual world, that's true. By reason of use. It's by getting these CDs and going back over them. It's getting these books and reading them. And, and by reason of use, by turning the pages, by listening to it again, by meditating on it, by thinking about it, discussing it on the way home, practicing it, discernment begins to creep up. The discernment meter begins to uh, fill. It's like driving a car, like riding a bike, like playing golf. Practice makes perfect. It's like NBA stars coming to the free throw line. I mean, why do they get it most of the time? Because they've done it a thousand times. Just practice until it's second nature. They could do it almost with their eyes closed. I'll finish with this story. The floor of the Princeton gym was being resurfaced many years ago. And the basketball standout, Bill Bradley, who would later become a U.S. senator, had to go to a local high school to practice. He's in the gym, he's doing some 14-foot jump shots from the right side, but 80% of them are bouncing off the rim or the back plate. Something's off. And so he kinda adjusts, kinda studies it and begins to drop those jump throws. And after his practice, He's walking off and he said, you know what? That basket's about an inch and a half too low. Now, the friend who wrote this story was there. He went back later with a measuring tape and he measured it. The net was one and one eighth inches too low. That's crazy. How did Bill Bradley know that? Because he's practiced that jump shot a million times. He knows when it's off. He discerns when it's off. Because through rapidity of use of his arm, he's got the feel and he knows when it's off. Friends, that's discernment. It's through prayer and Bible study and getting involved in theological discussions and thinking things through with better minds than yourself, sitting under good teaching, that the skill of discernment begins to develop and take root in your life. Let's pray. Lord, uh, well, thank you for this conference. Thank you for the theme, the focus of this conference. Thank you. It's a, a call to discernment, to know the times in which we live, to be able to realize that men are calling evil good and good evil in our culture. It's a call to recognize that there are those who can creep into the church who teach another gospel and another Christ. They are demons dressed as angels of light. Lord, Lord we realize there's, there's so much deception around us and then we have our own heart inherited from Adam, that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and subjection to the Word of God will lead us astray, which is dark in and of itself. We need to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Lord, we've got work to do. We thank you, but we're not left alone to do it. We can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling for you work in us. We pray that this conference, we pray that these messages will indeed bring about that work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God within the body of Christ, that we might be men who know the times in which we live, that we might be men like David who served the will of God in his generation. Give us a jeweler's eye. Give us discernment. And when we make judgments, help us to be fair. Help us to avoid the traps and side effects of an unhealthy and overbearing pursuit of discernment. Help us to pursue the good as much as we want to shun the evil, for we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.